Well, good morning. Well, it's been uh, quite a week this week. Finally had something that uh, I could enjoy that was uh, from home. You know, I'm missing the start of baseball season. I'm missing uh, the fact that I could go out and watch my own kid play for high school sports this spring. I mean, there's a lot that's just shifted and changed. And, and would you know, there was actually a sport that, that actually did something this week, and it was the NFL draft. And, and for those of you out there that are Eagles fans, I, I'm, I'm sure that you're still probably scratching your head as to who is Rieger? I mean, what kind of a receiver has that name? Oh, I'm sorry. It's probably taking us down a wrong line, and I've just lost all of your uh, thoughts towards other things. Now, Steelers fans, you definitely had a good draft. The Ravens had a good draft, and uh, I'm a Broncos fan, and so that probably puts me in the oddity here. But uh, in light of the the moment, I just wanted to provide a little levity because I recognize we've had so much that we've thought about that hasn't been positive. We, we're struggling for encouragement. Uh, we're trying to find hope in our situation. And, uh, and that's really hard to do when, when there are so many things going on that is discouraging uh, and seems to lack hope. And, uh, and so I recognize that right now that some of you are probably feeling like there's never been a season quite like this where injustice seems to be what's prevailing. I mean, for some of you, uh, this season has cost you a job. I mean, like more than 25% of Americans right now or are officially unemployed. Uh, I know that for some of you, uh, you've seen that the injustice has happened where maybe where they had to choose which people to keep, which people to let go. And, uh, and, it, and it seems like those who toted the party line uh, were the ones that were kept. And, uh, and maybe you were the one on the outside looking in and, and you didn't hold the party line because maybe you felt there was uh, something unethical about what the party line was representing. In other situations, um, you've, you've found that you built a, a significant uh, business that's doing well and thriving. You didn't cut corners. You did everything right. And yet, a pandemic is causing it to all be undone. I mean, how is that fair? Uh, when you've done everything as you should, ethically, by the book, wisely, only to see it be put to risk by uh, all the current regulations. Some of you, maybe going into the season, had seen a lot of what you built up and wisely lived out uh, being challenged because you actually experienced an illness. Uh, my wife went through cancer a couple years ago, but fortunately, uh, we weren't dependent upon her income, and so we were able to make it through. But what if you're the primary breadwinner and you are going through a cancer treatment and it's causing you know, the medical bills to grow up? Feels unfair. When, you know, maybe you've been healthy in the way you've treated your body, what you eat and, and what you do, and yet you're the one that's sick. There's a lot of things that we can begin to look around and see injustice or a lack of fairness when you compare yourself to somebody else. It can only be discouraging. But occasionally, you run into these situations where it's like, I, I can't make sense whether it's unfair or unjust, but it's unfortunate. I think of, you know, the current uh, children. I mean, imagine right now, us adults are told, we can go for walks. But the children, as we're walking, if they see a swing set at a park, they can't get on it. They're not allowed. They've been roped off. And, and the children are just thinking, what, what is this about? Like, why can't we go and do the things we enjoy? 
I can also think of people that are seniors right now, whether it be in college or high school, and, and, and they were planning to have some of these final experiences with their classmates, only to discover that they may never see some of those classmates again. It seems unfair. Seems unfortunate. Why in our lifetime? Why in your lifetime? In the midst of all this, when you know somebody has lost a lot, and then somehow you expect to have this conversation with them that commiserates the misery that you are experiencing together, only to find that the person's not really there where you're at. And they may have even lost more than you, but they tend to be more hopeful. They're, they're more optimistic. And you might say, well, maybe it's just because their cup is always half full. But that only works a little while when, until you start looking at how much they may have lost and how much they may be suffering just even more than you, but yet their attitude seems higher. There seems to be something filled with more hope. It's those kind of people right now that draw our attention. There's plenty of people that will be willing to engage you right now in their anger, or their frustration. You can strike up a conversation anywhere right now, grocery store or out on the walking trails, and get them to discuss whether or not the governor should be doing this or doing that. But when you get run into somebody that actually is speaking with hope, with optimism, with joy, it first causes you to jerk and think, what did I just run into? But, but then you're intrigued. What makes them so chipper? What makes them more hopeful? Only to find out that they're experiencing the same things you're experiencing. But there's a different outlook that seems to be coming deep from within them. You see, Peter is speaking to that very thing in his epistle. We've been looking from... 1 Peter, and we'll be going into 2 Peter here in a couple of weeks. Peter is speaking with that kind of lofty language in the midst of a very difficult season for the church. At this point, they're being ridiculed. They're being verbally abused. They're not necessarily being physically abused, but they are starting to lose their jobs. They're being uh, overlooked for promotions. They're, they're being sent out and out of everybody's way because nobody wants to be around the Christians at the time when he's writing this book. Nero is, is, is creating it to be a risk to have a relationship with a Christian. But yet, people kept being drawn to them. And, and because there was something different about the hopefulness that was built within their life. And so, as a result, they kept being platformed even though there was some sense of trying to social distance from them. And so in this text, Peter's writing to that kind of a context, similar to our situation. But in his, he knows and is, and is aware and sensing it's going to get worse. Now, I have no idea if our situation will get worse. But Peter is sensing it will get worse in his situation, and it did. If you study Nero, you'll find out it got tremendously worsed. So in this text, he is encouraging us to be courageous. One commentarian said about this particular portion of 1 Peter, he said, Peter is cautioning Christians to keep a clear conscience when facing injustice, to endure then the in inevitable suffering with Christ-like 
courage. So the text today, when we go to open it and read from it, I want to have you draw into that term, courage in the face of unfairness. Courage in the face of injustice. Courage in the face of so many unknowns. Because as a result of having courage in the face of all that, hope will become the light of who you become. Hope will be that what is shown from you to others. And you will then have conversations like no other. People will want to draw in to find out why you have that hope. So let's begin by reading in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he begins with this idea that a person who is courageous and is exuding hope is going to have a conduct that is different from others that are around them. And he begins with this idea of being like-minded. Another term you could use is harmonious, being in unity with others. Now, who is he saying you're being in unity with and and who are you being like-minded to? Well, in this case, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to a group of people that in some cases are meeting underground in the catacombs in fear for their lives. But he's saying, have harmony with each other. Be like-minded. In order for that to be the case, for the church to be unified and harmonious and like-minded, it requires being in relationship with the church, gathering with other believers, being part of the local church. It also means that there's something that when they do gather that draws them together, and that is the word of Christ. The word that we just read here that was where Peter is being carried along by the Holy Spirit so that we can know what's upon God's heart. So as we gather, we gather around, we worship our great God, and then we read from his heart what he wants to say to us. And when we do that, it will create a like-mindedness. And that like-mindedness will seem strange to the rest of the world. How can people of so many different uh, tastes and flavors, so to speak, can be so harmonious and and gather together and, 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 and do so in unity? That's a strange phenomenon, but yet we accomplish it across many different cultures, languages, and colors of skin. It's beautiful. But then as we gather, or as we go and separate and we, we walk along the road we, and our life paths take us other places. What is the attitude that a Christian should exude that communicates something of hope? Well, in this, Peter says, our lives, our conduct should be sympathetic, should be one of loving one another. You know, we know that the, the, the great golden rule is to 
love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and then to love others as we would love ourselves. So love is our marker. You know, it's, it's the exuding of the love we've received from God and giving it to someone else. So sympathy, compassion, humility, and love become our attitude. If in this time, especially when a lot of people are consumed with what's not right about the current context, somebody who is sympathetic, compassionate, humble, and is loving and respectful, that attitude is going to stick out, quite frankly, right now. And that's the attitude that Peter was calling the church to. He said, if our conduct exemplifies us, people are going to take notice. And that's what we want. We want people to take notice of what God is doing in our lives. And you want to, see, you want to know when people will take great notice of your life? When they treat you poorly, with a harsh word, with a harsh action, that you respond to them with more of a gentleness, a respectfulness, or avoiding retaliation. Maybe I can't be gentle. Maybe I can't uh, be respectful in that moment, but I can be silent and I can avoid saying something in retaliation. You see, it takes great courage to not retaliate when somebody treats you poorly. It takes great strength to withhold the words that you could probably effectively fire back with. That's where, again, hope and courage plays a significant role in causing people to take notice. There's a different set of rules that you're applying to your life. There's something that is within you that is causing you to withhold and it's showing courage and great strength. Then Peter says in verse 10, not only should we not, in verse 9, repay uh, evil with some kind of retaliation, but to bless those who retaliate, who uh, treat us poorly. He then says, guard your speech. Peter understands this. We, we often have a, ta a tag or a stereotype of Peter that's hoof and mouth Peter. Peter is used to saying the wrong thing. So for him to say, guard your speech, he's saying, I'm looking in the mirror. I, I get this. It's easy to say the wrong thing. So guard your speech. Your words are an account that will come back to bite you even years later. Something you said that was harmful to another will stick with that person for years. So guarding our speech is so important because it's the written record of your life. So guard your speech. So again, the conduct that Peter's speaking to that, that will show courage and show hope in a season like we're in is again, somebody who is sympathetic, compassionate, humble, loving, avoids retaliation and guards their tongue from speaking something harmful. And then lastly, the last piece of conduct he suggests is pursuing peace. Pursuing peace. Because God despises evil actions. And responses. He wants a person that pursues peace. And let me tell you, peacemaking is not easy. Some people say, well, that's, that's the easy way out. No, peacekeeping is the easy way out. Peacemaking is the hard road. It means avoiding the easy action of sweeping something under the carpet. But 
to choose to take on the challenges that are there. If you've wronged somebody, to go and ask for their forgiveness. If you feel hurt by somebody, sitting down with them and, and talking through that. Or if you see a conflict that is going on around you within your household, not just letting it go, but finding the root of the problem so that each other can reconcile. These are the things that God says. If your conduct looks like this, it's going to show that I'm in your life and doing a transformative work in you and others will begin to take notice. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't want them to take notice. I would rather be in the shadows. Or if I actually start doing this, people might begin to mock me for being different. Peter knows that's where a lot of us might start to think. So he starts saying in verse 13, right after what he's just said about this conduct, he says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? In verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So if our conduct is so otherworldly, where we're being sympathetic, compassionate, uh, not retaliating, guarding our tongues, and people begin to take notice, and you're fearing that notice because you're, you don't want to be mocked or, or to be made fun of or, uh, or just even to have people looking at you, even strangely. Peter says, what really are you going to suffer for doing good? What real harm is going to come to you for having chosen such conduct? And then to go on to say, and if you were to suffer harm for such conduct. Because keep in mind, the church was about ready to suffer martyrdom shortly after he writes this by the hand of Nero. So they were going to suffer for doing good. But they weren't going to suffer for being lawless. They were going to suffer because they chose to fear God more. So in this, Peter addresses very quickly. So he gives a rhetorical question. Who is going to harm you for doing good. And then he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. So in this rhetorical question, is this thought towards risk? It is our natural tendency that if we step out to do something different, that we assess the risk before doing so. And Peter hits it on the head and saying, don't calculate the risk by doing that which God would want you to do. That will keep you from doing the things God wants you to do. If you allow your life to be driven by being risk averse. You'll avoid the blessing that God speaks of in this text. I will bless those who do good. I'll bless those whose conduct exemplifies my work in their life. Don't avoid it because of some risk that might come to you. Stand in it. This whole idea of being risk averse is something that we are growing in in our culture we we if we think there's any sense of risk that somebody might get hurt we don't do it case in point the playgrounds i grew up playing on had merry-go-rounds 
And this merry-go-round, I literally had one of those at my elementary school, exactly like this one. And our goal was to spin somebody on that as fast as we could to see if they would throw up. That was what we would, that was our goal. And, and, or to avoid getting the one, being the one that would throw up. And, and so I got motion sickness really easy. So I was usually the loser in this one. I won't give you the graphic testimony of that, but we had so much fun with that. You do not see those kind of merry-go-rounds on the playgrounds today. Why? Because somewhere along the line, an insurance company says people get hurt on that because a parent may have said, well, my, parent, my kid got hurt on that merry-go-round, so I don't want to, uh, I don't think the, 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 the park should have had such a merry-go-round. So, therefore, they sue. And then over time, those lawsuits caused the insurance company to get rid of the merry-go-rounds. Here's another one. A giant slide. The slides today are no longer than like six feet. I mean, the thrill is so short. And that's why you don't even see kids on the slides. They're not on them. When slides were about 15 feet of height, like the ones I grew up on, there was a line for the slide. Because you would get on it, and then you would get to the bottom, and you would slide, and you'd probably hit the ground pretty hard because you were flying down the slide. Sometimes there was an injury, but usually something you could get over. But again, somewhere along the line, some child got hurt, somebody did a lawsuit, shouldn't have those slides, so now slides are boring. Let me tell you the biggest loss are the tall swings that used to exist. The swings now tend to be no taller than eight feet. So therefore, when you're swinging out, they don't really go out much more than four feet above the ground. The swings that I grew up with, if there were multiple swings in a row, they tend to be around 10 to 15 feet of height. But every park when I grew up had that one tall swing. And that tall swing could be up to 20 and 25 feet in length. And let me tell you, so much fun. And I can also say that, yes, I got injured on one of those tall swings. We came up with a great idea. What if you piled a huge pile of leaves at a, at a launching spot? And so when you're at the peak of height on that swing, which would be about 15 plus feet off the ground, to launch out and land in the leaves. Now, it was fun as long as you landed in the leaves. And one of my injuries I sustained growing up was missing the leaf pile. <laughs> Oh, and let me tell you, I was not walking right for quite some time. I don't even know if my parents know about this. But it was an injury that I, my ankle was not right for quite some time. And I still to this day have clicks on my ankle that I'm confident from a poor landing off of that swing. But if I got injured on that swing, that's my fault, not the park's fault for having such a swing. But because we've taken on this risk-averse uh, situation, we currently have no tall swings, we have no merry-go-rounds, and we do not have teeter-totters. Seahorses. You know, we used to have these at every park, and it used to be fun to cause it, somebody to bounce off that thing. But because injuries happen, we get rid of them, and so they don't exist any longer. You're missing out. And today, if we build a treehouse, 
we build this elaborate staircase to get up into the treehouse. Because God forbid that if you climbed up into a tree, that we'd actually fall and get hurt. Now, again, I'm not advocating for somebody to climb 20 feet in a tree at a, at a, at a place where it's truly dangerous. But do you realize millennials and children, because my generation created lawsuits, what you've missed out on? You've missed out on tall slides, merry-go-rounds, watching your friends puke off of a merry-round. You've missed the friends launching off of tall swings. You've missed building tree houses on your own and not having your parents build them for you. This is what you've missed out on because we avoid risks. But what we've done not only in my generation and the generations below, because we've become so risk-averse, it's playing out in all aspects of our lives. And we fail to take risk, especially with the things that matter most. Love. Love. Love is risk. And we fail to love on people because we don't want to take the risk of getting hurt. Living out our faith. Same thing. Peter's addressing it. Some of us will avoid this kind of conduct that exemplifies and glorifies Jesus Christ because it would be a risk to get mocked. It would be a risk to look different and we don't want to take it. Courage communicates something different. Peter is telling us, if you, take, if you keep being courageous and you keep living out what God is doing in your life and let others see it, some good things are going to come of it. And that's what he says in, in verse 15. Listen, people will begin to ask you why you have hope. What if people quit asking you, aren't you so upset right now with what's going on with the government and all these restrictions? If people sense that they can bait you into an, an angry tirade, but they can't sense that they can draw from you hope, what does that say about you and I? God wants people to see hope right now. He wants people to see that there is hope in this current context. And the opportunity for doing that is letting what God is doing in us be seen by others. And he says, as a result, people will begin to ask you for the answer as to why you have hope. And then he says, be prepared to give that answer. And to do so with a gentle and respectful spirit. Perhaps they'll ask you why you're so different. Why you have hope. But they do it with that mocking tone. Gently and respectfully respond to their question. That may have been in mockery. But to do so in respect to them. So that they can actually hear the answer. Don't retaliate and be snarky back. Respond with that gentle and respectful spirit. Peter goes on that if we give an answer to this, this hope that we have with a gentle and respectful heart, this will lead to a clear conscience before God. So verse 16, we go from conduct to courage to now conscience. And he says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is uh, God's will to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. In other words, accusations. If somebody mocks your good behavior, others are going to be watching us and saying, well, who's the real fool? The mocker or the person that's being courageous? The mocker or the person that's offering hope? 
The test of mankind will eventually show the person being courageous with good conduct will stand as the wise one versus the fool who is the mocker. You see, if we can stand with that kind of courage, then we can know between us and God, there's no harm. There, our conscience is clear. I love the story of the Apostle Paul. This was a man who lived as an accuser of the church until God changed his life. And then he became the greatest advocate for Jesus Christ. And Paul was brought before many councils, many courts, many groups of people in threats of his life. And one, in, one situation in particular was when Paul was brought before Felix. Felix was a Roman leader. And he was uh, bringing out all of these accusations against Paul and trying to give some sense of clarity as to why all this uproar to what Paul's message was. And I love how Ken Davis, the comedian, speaks of Paul's encounter before these courts. This is Ken speaking. Paul's adversaries wanted to punish Paul for speaking about Jesus. And he said, great, I consider it a privilege to suffer for Jesus' name. <laughs> well, his adversaries didn't care for that too much. And they discussed this among themselves and said, well, we certainly don't want to give him any privileges. So let's kill him. <laughs> Paul said, great, I consider it a promotion to die for Jesus' name. <laughs> his adversaries didn't like that either. And, and so they said, well, certainly we don't want to promote him. So let's release him and then just simply warn him. So time and time again, Paul was released. And in this occasion, Paul saw the opportunity and actually appealed to Caesar and forced the privilege and promotion that he was going to receive in Jesus' name. You see, Paul, his conscience was clear. He was going to let the testimony of his life be seen by others. And as a result, God was being glorified. As a result, God was being glorified. You see, Paul considered it joy to suffer for Jesus' name. And so every time they tried to accuse him or mock him, Paul considered it a privilege. His courage only grew. And then when they threatened to kill him, he said, great, then I'm promoted to be with the Father God himself. And they didn't like that either because they didn't want him feeling any satisfaction. Paul considered it joy to suffer for God. And that's what Peter says here in verse 17. If we are going to suffer for doing good, to consider it a joy. Consider it a blessing to glorify God and to suffer for his name. Rather than to suffer for the stupid mistakes that you and I might make on a daily basis. I do suffer for my mistakes. I suffer for the foolish things I do. But I shouldn't avoid suffering for doing the things that would glorify God. Let's continue reading in verses 18 uh, to 22. Where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. You see, Christ didn't avoid suffering. He did so for our sake, for our sins, our mistakes, the righteous for the unrighteous, him being righteous, for us being the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. 
He was then put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. This happened during the time from his death before his resurrection. To those who were then disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes the baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but rather the pledge of a clear conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. You see, Christ suffered as the righteous one for you and I as the unrighteous people. Him unjustly crucified and us unjustly being redeemed. Doesn't seem fair that I'm made right before God because Jesus chose to suffer the suffering that was due me. And that's what Peter is acknowledging. Why would we avoid the risk of mockery? Why would we avoid the risk of some kind of suffering and avoid showing this life that's being transformed by what Jesus is doing inside our lives? Why would we avoid letting other people see that? Just because we would avoid mockery? Some kind of verbal abuse? Yet we would withhold out of some kind of shame the opportunity for them to see God is changing us? And Peter reminds us that Christ suffered for you and I so that we can be made righteous and be transformed in the eyes of God. You see, as he says here, God is in the business of saving lives through Jesus. It happened in the time of Noah, and it's happening in our lifetime because of the work of the cross. God is in the business of saving you and I. We are not righteous. We've committed so many errors. I have suffered consequences for those many errors. But my conscience is now clear, not because I've done anything right, but because Christ did it all. He paid it all. He suffered in my place on the cross and then came back from the grave three days later so that I could have hope in his work. And by faith, I receive that and I believe in it. And as a result, my conscience is clear because he's done the work to save me. And then in verse 22, he says, all of this is done now as he is sitting at the right hand of God and therefore all powers and authorities now have to submit to him. So now we have the opportunity to choose to submit to him as our Lord, our leader of life. So as Peter speaks, for those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, they have the opportunity to live out that transformed life that's being changed every day, being loving, sympathetic, compassionate, non-retaliatory, avoiding using harsh language with their tongues, exuding hope so that others can ask us, why are we so different? And not being afraid to give them an answer, not being afraid to live it out, so that they can see there is hope in our current context. And then when they give you that question and you offer the answer in return, you give them Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. And I've submitted my life to him. And as a result, he's transforming me. So you have that same choice now. To choose to follow Jesus. Will you pray with me? Jesus,
First of all, I say thank you for changing my life. Thank you for changing the lives of many who are watching right now. Thank you for the suffering you endured so that we could be made clear in our conscience before God because our faith and trust have been put into your work, not ours. So would you do a work in every heart right now that for those of us who have received that beautiful gift of grace by your work can now go with courage in living this out so that others can see and make a decision to choose Christ like we have. And then God, for those who are listening to this who have never chosen Christ, maybe they've known about Christ, but they've been fearful. They avoid the mockery, the risk averse. They don't want to give up control of their life to something else. God, would you speak into their heart? May they realize you are a gentle and gracious and loving God. And that Jesus, that you have paid a great price for them because you love them so much. Would you draw them to your heart that they would choose you? Thank you, Jesus, for the hope you offer that you know the future and therefore you know how to guide us in the present. So with that, we operate with courage knowing you are leading the way. And may others see the hope that is in us, that hope that is rooted in you, Jesus, as the anchor of our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. Having said that, I would like to give you a few questions to consider asking somebody else that might be sitting with you. Have you chosen truly to trust the Lord with the outcomes of your life and letting him lead? Or do you choose to listen to the risk first? Consider taking some time to get real with God in response to this question. And consider choosing this day who you will serve. Are you serving yourself or are you going to serve Jesus? Are you willing to proclaim him or are you going to withhold what he's doing in your life and let others not see it? Maybe you're avoiding choosing him as your Lord because you don't want to give him control. After all, that's what's causing a lot of people anxiety right now is because they can't control the current situation. But God can. So let's entrust ourselves to him. Secondly, which of the following is the most difficult for you to live out as a follower of Christ? A humble spirit. Avoiding retaliation. Speaking words that glorify God. Or having like-mindedness or unity with other Christians. Why is this, whatever one you choose, why is it so difficult for you? And how can others, maybe that are around you right now, how can they help you in that area? Thirdly, what risks do you avoid in your life that would proclaim the hope of Christ? What do you avoid and risk aversion to exude hope in your conduct, in your behaviors? What areas? And then in that area that you identify, how can you be more courageous in that area to the benefit of others? Then lastly, this is an opportunity for every generation. Who can you bless right now that would be shocked to receive it from you? We're told in this text to bless those who curse you, to not retaliate against those who harm you. Maybe there's just somebody you don't care for. You don't like them. Is there a Facebook message, a text? Is there something you can mail to them? Is there something you can deliver to their home safely, of course? 
that would shock them and would clearly be a blessing. Consider right now an unlikely recipient of your blessing. We're all unlikely recipients of the blessings of Christ. This is our opportunity to pay it forward. I trust that this discussion time will be a blessing to you in your home. Now may God bless you and orchestrate your steps. May your behavior and conduct show the hope that comes from Christ. And may you have courage to live that out before others as you choose each day to live for Jesus. God bless. We love you and we want to continue to serve you. Speak back to us. Send us emails. Go to our website. Communicate with us how we might be able to help you. Until we can be face to face, God bless you. God bless your home. Be safe.